And would you join with me in prayer? Oh, Father God, you are mighty to save, even today, even here. We thank you for your amazing kindness poured into so many millions and millions of lives. Father, help us to know you and to, to respond to the offer of the Lord Jesus that we would come to him and find rest. Be glorified. Help us, we pray, to be filled with joy as we contemplate your character and your goodness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we turn this morning to uh, Romans 9, 10, 11. We've been in this section where the Apostle Paul has been wrestling with the question of why so many of his fellow Jews were not putting their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. It caused him great sorrow, unceasing anguish, he says at the beginning of chapter 9. While in comparison, the many non-Jewish people, shorthand Gentiles, had put their trust in Jesus. So the churches were full of Gentiles more than Jewish believers. And as I've been studying these chapters, it struck me, I didn't really know much about the Jewish community here in Edinburgh. And so through the website of the Orthodox Synagogue, I, I got in touch with Rabbi David Rose, who kindly agreed to show me around the synagogue before Christmas. And it was absolutely fascinating. It was very kind of him to give me the time. And uh, in the main meeting room, there was a, a big box on the wall, which he described as the Ark, in which are the Hebrew scrolls that are taken out. Uh, they read through the whole of the Pentateuch, uh, every year in their Sabbath gatherings. And over coffee, I asked the rabbi how someone could become a Jew. And his reply was this, you must come under the yoke of the law. You must come under the yoke of the law. And what he meant by that was that you need to uh, submit to all the dietary regulations. You need to, uh, all the rules about Sabbath um, if you're a man, you need to be circumcised. There'll be a, a ritual cleansing ceremony as well. But it just struck me, you must come under the yoke of the law. And what, as we've been seeing from the Apostle Paul in 9, 10, 11, it still seems to be the case that the observant Orthodox Jew is pursuing a righteousness, a right standing before God on the basis of their works on the basis of their compliance with uh, the Mosaic law. And how striking to hear that phrase, the yoke of the law, and recall the invitation of Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And he's speaking to his fellow Jews, probably weary and burdened from trying to obey the law. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the Mosaic law, it, it, it was a signpost, is a signpost to pointing to Jesus as the Messiah who came in fulfillment of the law, the suffering servant who died in the place of sinners, so that 
Anyone who puts their trust in him can be made right with God, can be declared righteous. To come under his yoke is to find rest for your souls. And that's available for everyone here today. Anyone, anyone who will hear his call, come to me, Jesus says. And yet the problem that um, the Apostle Paul was wrestling with was this one, was why did so few of the Jewish people of his day respond? Why had so many become hardened to the message that Jesus was the Messiah? And what did this mean for God's plan for the Jewish people? Since so many Jewish people had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, had God rejected them? Has God gone back on his promises to the Jews? This is what he's wrestling with in 9, 10, and 11. And it's a vital question for us today because if God does go back on his promises, then how can we have any reassurance that his promises will remain there for us? Now, if you have a short attention span, um, then I, I, I urge you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 and look particularly at verse 29. So if your attention span wanders... Look back at 11 verse 29, which says this, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. See, when God gives his promises, they cannot be changed. When God calls people to himself, this will not be reversed. God cannot go back on his promises and he will always fulfill his purposes. Now that's the bedrock of the assurance of the Christian today. And it's rooted in the character of God. Our faith rests in the nature and the character of who God is. As verse 22 urges us then, we need to consider the kindness and the sternness of God. There are two things we need to remember this morning. The kindness of God and the sternness of God. Now there's three parts of this chapter to chapter 11. And the first two sections kind of answer a question that he poses. And then the final is one of adoration and worship. So let's just work through this section. Firstly, first point is that God is surprisingly kind. Take a look at verse 1. I ask then... Did God reject his people? Since the Jewish people had rejected Jesus the Messiah, had God rejected them? Has God had enough of the Jews? Has he washed his hands of them? And Paul's emphatic answer is, by no means. And Paul argues that there are thousands of Jews who've put their trust in Jesus, including Paul himself. That's who he goes on to say. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Now consider the surprising kindness of God in the salvation of Paul. He'd once persecuted Christians who proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. He'd been very violent. He'd, he'd, he promoted violence against the believers. He was a terrorist. He pursued Christians in order to, to, to imprison them. Of all the people you'd expect God to have rejected in his top ten, surely the Apostle Paul would have been up there. But here's God's amazing grace. Here's his incredible kindness. 
Paul was blinded by the glory of Jesus who met him on the Damascus road and then he was taken to Damascus where a Jewish believer in Jesus was sent to welcome him through baptism and restore his sight. A terrorist becomes a Christian who boldly taught that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So here's a stunning example of how God does not reject his chosen people and his surprising kindness. Paul was an Israelite, a descendant from the tribe the very first king came from, Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. And God is surprisingly kind to many more than we might ever imagine. A believing remnant existed throughout the Old Testament era. He uses another illustration. He says, remember Elijah, remember the time of Elijah, where the whole nation, it felt like, had apostatized to the worship of Baal. And a big showdown on Mount Carmel. You can read about it in 1 Kings 18. God revealed his glorious fire descended from heaven, despite the fact the prophets of Baal could produce nothing from the skies. And after that great high moment, Elijah receives a death threat from Jezebel. And he seems to collapse and he runs in fear to Mount Horeb where he appeals to God uh, as it says there in verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And I don't know, maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you feel quite isolated in your school Uh, school classes, very very isolated in your family or your workplace. You feel like you're the last one standing. But God has some news for Elijah, doesn't he? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So even surrounded by a nation that had Uh, given itself over to uh, worship of other gods, to idolatry. Here is the kindness of God, that there was still a remnant chosen by grace. A believing remnant. I've reserved for myself 7,000. He was not the only one left. See, God in his surprising kindness elects and saves far bigger number than we might see with our eyes, all chosen by God's amazing grace. Now, after one of our carol services, which is probably the lowest attended carol services in the last 12 years, uh, a nephew uh, who's part of a small church plant in East Lothian was in attendance, and even though we had such small numbers, he turned to me and said, it's so encouraging to realize that there are so many more Christians out there. He doesn't know of any other Christians in his school. And he's a teacher there. And in his, he's got a very small church plant. So it's so encouraging to see all these Christians. There's hardly anyone compared to what we used to. But it's amazing. God is electing to save far more than we would ever imagine. And the Apostle Paul points out that there were and are and always will be thousands and thousands of Jewish people saved by God. Verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God has not finished with the Jews. He's not washed his hands of them. He has always saved a remnant of the Jews and has continued to do so 
in the current age of this new covenant, God is not finished. However, Paul can say in verse 7 that Israel as a whole has not obtained salvation. Look at verse 7. What the, the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. And so alongside the kindness of God, we must also consider the sternness of God. As people rejected God to worship false gods and to pursue idolatry, they hardened their hearts against God. And God gave them over to the hardening of their hearts. He allowed them to pursue their spiritual rebellion and all the terrible consequences. Look at verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. So even as we are encouraged by the kindness of God, there's a warning in this whole chapter to professing Christians who stubbornly ignore God's word, who are turning away from God to actively rebel against God and pursue sin. Do not think that you can so easily walk away from Christ for a season. And then when you decide, oh, I will just simply repent and I'll, and I'll come back at some later stage. That would be a very foolish thing to think. Are you so certain that there will come a day when you want to return to Christ? There's a danger when we harden our hearts even as we've been surrounded by the gracious blessings of God in our lives, we might find that we no longer want to see the inside of a church. We might no longer want to hear God's word again uh, if we harden our hearts and harden our hearts from him. And so my friends, I would say to you, if you're contemplating this sort of, you're beginning to drift away from him, drift from his word, don't harden your hearts against God. For the great majority of Israel who experienced so many of God's gifts and blessings as a whole did not obtain salvation. You see, growing up in a Bible-believing church is a great blessing. And even if you've once professed faith in Christ and managed to convince the elders to get baptized, it means nothing if you basically turn away from Christ and walk away from Christ and harden your hearts against him. If you continue walking away, you will experience the sternness of God. And I warn you, I appeal to you, do not do that. Repent. Don't allow your heart to be hardened. Don't put yourself at risk of being someone who could be cut off. But instead, humble yourself and return. Because the predominant message of this passage is that God is so surprisingly kind. Secondly, kindness is deeply attractive. And we see this in verses 11 to 32. See, the second half of Romans 11 goes on to explain why this condition of Israel, one where they'd not obtain salvation, is not a permanent condition. God's word had not failed. God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. So in, in verse 11 onwards, Paul explains this kind of his salvation historical process 
that occurred between, occurs between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. And we're just going to think about three steps this morning. Step one, as Israel rejects the gospel, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, to the nations. As you read through the book of Acts, you see this happening over and over in Paul's uh, missionary work. He arrived in a town. If there was a synagogue, he would go there first. He would start preaching and trying to persuade people from their scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. But before too long, he would basically get ejected from the synagogue, which in turn led him to share the good news of Jesus to all the other nations in that city or that area. In a way, the hardening of the Jewish people is part of God's surprising kindness because their rejection caused the good news of Jesus to be preached to the Gentiles. At the beginning, it looks like the Jerusalem church was very happy just being there in Jerusalem. It took persecution to spread people out so that people began to share the good news with the Samaritans and then with the, the Gentiles. How surprising that we as Gentiles, if you're not a Jewish person, that we get blessed from the Jewish Messiah. And as Paul and Barnabas proclaimed to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, even as they were ushering out the door, they said this, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord commanded us, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, it says. That's an important verse, isn't it? Who believed? All who were appointed to eternal life, those chosen by grace. But that's not the end of the process, he goes on to say. Step two, in verses 11 to 15, he says that the gospel goes to the Gentiles not as an end of the process, but with a further purpose, a further step of making the Jews jealous or envious. Look at verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul was so passionate to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Take a look at verse 14. In the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. God's kindness is deeply attractive. My friend Martin Pakula grew up an Orthodox Jew, attending regularly at his local synagogue in Sydney. And as he went to university, he studied medicine. And he kept asking a girl to go out with him. She refused, she said, because she was a Christian. But he persisted. And so she finally said, okay, I'll go out with you just one time as long as I can talk to you about Jesus. He thought, well, fair enough. That was the first time he'd ever heard the name of Jesus. He thought Jesus must have been a boyfriend in the, in the past. So she wants to tell me about a, a boyfriend that didn't work out or something. So... Um, she went on a date with him basically to share the gospel with him and she shared the gospel with him and she gave him a book by John Chapman who explained 
the good news about Jesus. And, and, and that started him on this intense time of discussion and thinking about the gospel before he decided, yes, he would put his trust in Jesus as his Messiah and Lord so that he could, he could become right with God. Now, when Martin has opportunities to speak to other Jewish people, when he gives an evangelistic talk, uh, he has sometimes said something like this, these dumb goyim, these Gentiles, they've got your Messiah. They've got your salvation. They've got your forgiveness of sins. They've got your eternal life. It's all Jewish. They've got it all. They've lapped it up. And so why are you saying, no, I don't want it? Because it's not Jewish. And of course, my understanding of this section has greatly helped with my discussions and, uh, uh, with Martin in the past. Uh, why does he say this? Because he wants to make his Jewish hearers envious. To see that the Gentiles have inherited God's promises to Israel. And that they too might be attracted to God's kindness to trust Jesus as their Messiah. And you see, this process continues to this day. Each week I receive emails from Christian witness to Israel of stories of Jewish people have put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah, just as my friend Martin did. Now, to us, it sounds amazing when we hear of uh, a Jew becoming a Christian because our churches tend to be full of Gentiles and uh, Jewish believers are a rarity. But you know, the amazing thing in the New Testament is exactly the opposite. It's not that God's people, the Jews, would believe in Jesus, but that Gentiles would believe in their Jewish Messiah. It took Peter, the apostle, a lot of dramatic convincing that he should take the gospel to Cornelius, the Gentile soldier, to share the good news with him. And Paul explains in verses 17 to 24 that the church, the olive tree, is Jewish. The Jews are the natural branches, he says in this analogy of the olive tree. Uh, Gentiles have been grafted into the Jewish olive tree, um, but it's their contrary to nature, he says in verse 24. Now, he doesn't mean that Jews are better than Gentiles, but that God made these promises to Israel and not to any other nation. The Jews are the natural heirs and recipients of the gospel. When a Jewish person becomes a Christian, they are a natural branch being grafted into their own tree. They're inheriting their own promises. Now, this shouldn't make us Gentile Christians feel inferior or resentful. Instead, we should be profoundly grateful and humble that God's amazing mercy includes us in his salvation. It should cause, as Paul says in verses 18 to 20, any Gentile boasting or arrogance to disappear. Uh, we were those who were without God and without hope in the world, and yet we've been adopted by grace into a family that was not originally ours. So there should be, there should be no place for anti-Semitism amongst Christians it's kind of horrific to go back in history and see the terrible ways that some who've called themselves Christians have treated Jewish people. There should be no place for anti-Semitism. As Gentile believers, 
we need to always remember and respect that we're the ones who've been grafted in. The root of Christ church is a Jewish root. Jews are the natural heirs and recipients of the gospel. If they repent and turn back to Christ, they will be grafted into their own Jewish church. Look at verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature and were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And then Paul shares something that he describes as a mystery. Step three. All Israel will be saved. Look at verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of sermons and ink in commentaries spilt uh, covering the various options of what this might mean. I don't think it means that every Jew will be saved, for Jews are saved only by trusting in Jesus, and not all Jews do trust in Jesus. Paul is talking here about Israel as a whole group, the Jewish people. Israel, Paul has said back in verse 7, has not obtained salvation. But the time will come when Israel will have obtained salvation. God's word to them will not have failed. For when the fullness of the Gentiles comes, Paul says, that's when Jesus returns, when all the Gentiles who will be saved have been saved, then all Israel will be saved, it says. Now some would see that uh, one of the things that will happen in the final stages of the last days is there'll be a massive number of Jewish people come to put their trust in Jesus in the, sort of the final moments of the end days. And that would be a delightful thing if that's the case, but it would have been little comfort to previous generations of Israel. So verse 26 is, is helpfully translated in the NIV 2011, and in this way. This, this is Paul um, saying that he's not explaining a, a future timetable, but he's speaking about the way in which Israel as a whole will be saved. In what way will Israel as a whole be saved? Well, by being provoked to envy by the gospel going to the Gentiles. This is the process by which Israel will be saved. The kindness of God to the Gentiles will be attractive to Jewish people in between the first and the second comings of Jesus. They will see the gospel going out to the Gentiles, see that, uh, that, that, see that they receive the, their inheritance and blessings, and will themselves then turn to God in envy and be saved. That is how, in the end, Israel as a whole will be saved. So when Jesus returns, and uh, that, those verses that we began with at the beginning of this service, of, of picturing the, the nations standing before God, the saved people of God on that final day, we'll look around and we'll see countless millions of Jews who have believed throughout the ages, standing there in heaven, 
as part of God's people, and when we see those millions of saved Jews standing there, the total remnant from all time, then we will to say, all Israel has been saved. God has kept his promises to Israel. God's word has not failed. God has not taken back his promises to the Jews. His plan was never for... A, um, His, his plan was never that Jesus would return and, and, all, and all Jews would be accepted because they would all trust him as their Messiah. His plan has always been that there'd be a remnant that would believe. That's what Paul is teaching in this chapter. So in one way, Jews are no different to anyone else. The Jewish people need to hear the gospel and trust Jesus. Um, and in another way, Jews are different to everyone else in that they are God's ancient chosen people. As Paul described back in chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, this amazing list of privileges. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. And so I think we should be thinking as a church how we might support those groups that share the gospel with Jewish people, even as we should seek to share the gospel with Jewish people that we, that we meet, obviously doing so with gentleness and respect. We don't, at the moment, have a mission partner that has a ministry to Jewish people, and perhaps we should look to establish that as a church uh, over the year ahead. But this leads us to our third point. The third point is this, in verses 33 to 36, to see the kindness of God brings glory to God. This salvation is all of God's grace and kindness, and so it can only be for his glory. And so Paul sort of steps back from this amazing look at this plan of salvation in history, and he worships God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God, which is what you see is the way it's translated in the footnote. There are two things being praised here, I believe. Firstly, his inexhaustible riches and his unfathomable wisdom. The way that God runs the world is beyond us. The way God allows the riches of his grace to overflow to so many the way his grace is so much greater than our sin can only lead us to worship, adoration, and praise. No invented religion gets anywhere near the beauty of God's grace and kindness that we find in his words. You know, God doesn't need us to counsel him. He doesn't need a few bits of helpful feedback to help him keep on track with his plan. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't owe us anything. In fact, we owe him everything. We're the ones who are totally indebted to God for everything. He's the source of all things, it says, for from him. He's the sustainer of all things and through him. And he's the goal of all things. And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So consider, my friends, the kindness 
and the sternness of God today. We're going to close with a hymn that reminds us that his mercy is more. His mercy is more. And my friends, if you are not trusting Christ today, you can trust Christ today. You can come to him and be made right with God. If you profess faith in Christ, you're beginning to walk away, don't do that. Turn right back around. His mercy is more. Let's worship him.